Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Shinar, and Hermon, from the lion's den, from the mountains of the leopards. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine, and the smell of thine ointments than all spices. Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as an honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue, and the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, camphire, and with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, thou south, Blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden, and eat his pleasant fruits. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, 8 through 16. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of A Father's Instruction. This is Jason Tackett. Today we will be continuing our discussion of biblical sexuality and building on the principles of the divine origin of sexuality and its boundaries and purposes that are given to it by God. I hope this will be a blessing to you as we continue our discussion and find deeper meaning in sexuality. Lord bless. Diving right on in into our topic from where we left off last time, we discussed the divine origins of sex, that it was something created by God, and therefore it has a meta-narrative as opposed to the self-creation model of sexuality that denies that there is any truth, that there is a meta-narrative or or any purposes or meaning in sexuality other than that which is created in our own minds um, and 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 brought forth by the power of our will or the 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 will to power if you will in, in, into the realm of the physical um, and Last time we talked about those divine origins, that sex was something created by God. He created the male and female. The first command was sexual, uh, wherein uh, he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Um, Where Marriage itself and the boundaries of marriage were created and ordained by God in the first marriage, um, where where they were told... uh, 
For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And we talked about the purposes, the purposes of bringing forth life, uh, that through this relationship and the sexual relationship between a man and woman, life is brought forth. And then when, and then there's the purposes of pleasure, where we see uh, the the wonderful love of God in create in giving uh, pleasure in this as well, and the relational aspect, the purpose of fellowship between a man and his wife, whereby it said Adam knew Eve and, and Jacob knew Rachel and, and so on and so forth, where this there's this intimacy and this intimacy appears to be um, created in the very uh, fabric of our of our physical existence as well, this face-to-face relationship between a man and woman that is possible. And as as we kind of got a flavor of that as I was reading the scripture earlier from Song of Solomon, this this wonderful and pleasurable intimacy where then this life-giving and life-creating relationship that exists. Now, now everything in today's idea of sexuality is kind of removed this idea of this life-giving relationship uh, that is foundational to understanding the purposes of sexuality. Um, uh, you don't understand modern uh, idols of sex that have been built in our culture uh, without understanding that procreation is no longer considered an aspect of sexuality, period, or if it's considered an aspect of sexuality, it is one that is completely um, secondary or, or, or even worse. Um, um, it cease, when, when it ceases to be about this life-giving relationship, um, it's only a celebration of sin, and it's only a celebration of sensualism. Uh, or sensuality, rather, um, and I've procreation in in a relationship between a man and woman in the bounds of marriage is it mirrors that potential of obedience of bringing forth life, and I've heard one person make the argument um, when the gay marriage debate and things like that was going on they made an argument to me that uh, that that there that what about people men and women who cannot have kids uh, and we kind of touch on that they still have this life-giving relationship uh, something that is something that is central to the development of those that come after them uh, the presence of a mother or the presence of a father um, so but there but there is uh, there is no reason for us to kind of just because we hold up this idea of sexuality there there's no for reason for us to take this as a valid argument against it uh widow elderly widows that marry still still uh mirror the potentiality of obedience to this and still uh by by their obedience uh 
have this life-giving mechanism within that relationship. Um, So so I don't necessarily think that that is a a valid criticism of biblical sexuality. And ultimately... uh, we see a self-defeating nature to the current view of sexuality, and it, it has a real problem with uh, the law of non-contradiction, for instance. Uh, it has a real problem with the morality of everything, uh, whereas uh, whereas when you're denying a meta-narrative, when you're denying truth, you're, you've already got a problem with the law of non-contradiction, but morally you have the problem of answering a question, is there anything wrong with anything? And and I'm gonna I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I'm gonna talk about this in a second. But um, but it seems like everything in today's sexuality arbitrarily uh, holds up as this idea. Well, as long as there's consent, and and consent is a very arbitrary thing when you've already denied the existence of truth. Uh, you you have a hard time ever saying that there's anything wrong with anything. Um, uh, when we try to, uh, that, that's why we're seeing, and I got to get my thoughts together, but that's why we're seeing, um, this push now for, uh, a removal of, uh, age of consent laws and things like that. Um, because consent is a very arbitrary thing and why even demand consent to be part of, to be your not just a part of, but your sole ethic when it comes to sex is this idea of consent, as long as there's consent. Um, that is not a very firm ethic. Uh, for instance, we make kids eat their vegetables. <laughs> uh, we don't ask their further consent to go to whether or not they want to go to school. We make adults pay taxes in our society. We make dogs go outside and we never question the idea of consent in any of these things. And, and consent is one of those things that's easy, um, easy to kind of poke holes in and, and maneuver around as you try to define it. Um, but in this term of self-creation with sexuality, why do I need consent? Or why does someone who holds this philosophy need consent from someone else to express their sexuality? And, and that's the barrier it runs into. If, if, some, if I need your consent to express my sexuality... Uh, sexuality demands your participation, then that somehow is shutting down uh, my right to self-expression. So, so it really has this ethical problem of saying that there's anything wrong with any, anything. And so once there is no truth, we end up right where Dostoevsky told us we would end up with. Uh, all things are permissible. There's nothing ultimately that you're able to say is wrong with anything. Um, so coming back to these, these purposes and this truth that is built into sexuality, it is important that, that we, that we understand those because there is definitely, uh, something wrong with a lot of things that, 
that are that are done sexually in this world and anybody who has who has worked in the field of child protection or worked in the field of law enforcement um, knows knows that to be true now I didn't get a chance last time to speak more practically about this matter of sexuality um, we dealt a lot with the theology of it and laying the boundaries of our understanding of sexuality. Uh, and when I'm always doing this podcast, I'm always trying to to think of how I'm going to speak of this uh, to my children and, and such like. Um, so I want to just kind of give this principle, uh, first of all, just for those in a marriage relationship, there should be principles that we're looking at um, when it comes to our our sexuality and the expression of it one with another within the marriage relationship and so i just want to just kind of throw out a few practical principles of of things uh that we must consider when we're when we're discussing sexuality when we're teaching sexuality and when we're practicing sexuality within the confines of god's boundaries of one man one woman in a marriage relationship we should ask ourselves several questions uh, in the marriage relationship, does the sexual act honor God as creator or does it defy him or his creative order? Um, and there are certain sexual acts that are discussed in our society that defy the design of the human body. Uh, therefore, they cannot glorify God as creator. Uh, if we see sex as God-given, then we should in turn seek to honor God in it. As we discussed last time, the Lord is for the body, and the body is for the Lord in 1 Corinthians 6. Um, there are certain things that 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 God is held to be um, displeasing in his sight um, in the scriptures and we should always consider that um, and the fact that one day we will have an account to give to God of the things that we have done in the body uh, so we must try to honor him as creator um, we should ask ourselves is it something that is directly uh, condemned by the authority of God's word there are definite sexual acts that God speaks against you know, such as adultery and things of that nature um, so so we should always try to bring our ideas of sex and sexuality in line with what God's word says uh, third, we should we should ask ourselves: Does it occur within the confounds of the of those boundaries that God has given? Um, um, does does it honor that marriage bed uh, that discussed in Hebrews thirteen? Uh, another question is: Does it violate the conscience, not being a faith of either you or your spouse? And the conscience is very important. Romans 13 says that which is not a faith is sin. Um, the conscience of man is not the standard of right and wrong. The word of God is. And we should always work to have our conscience informed by the word of God more and more as we grow in Christ. However, it's a sin to go against your conscience. And that's uh, directly declared by the word of God. A Christian 
should always seek to have a conscience informed by the Word of God and respond immediately when uh, that conscience is being violated. Uh, if you're not sure or if your spouse is not sure about something, if it's right or wrong to do, then it's wrong to do until you know more fully from the Word of God uh, that it is acceptable. We should also ask ourselves the question, does it involve any level of unfaithfulness against the spouse, mentally or spiritually? All sexual desires should always be focused and directed to the spouse and not to a third party or anything else, whether that third party is real or imaginary. Uh, the one Christ said that a man who looks upon a woman to lust after, after her hath already committed adultery in his heart. Uh, so it's not just that, that real aspect, it's also that imaginary aspect. We need to guard our thoughts and have faithful thoughts uh, um, in this realm of sexuality towards our spouse. And, and another question is, does it minister to the needs of your spouse? Um, there should never be a selfishness in sexual relationships within the uh, marriage relationship. It, sex in a, in one aspect is a ministry that you're ministering to the other. First uh, Corinthians chapter seven uh, says, "Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise the wife to the husband." And it goes on to say, "The wife." has not power over her over her own body but the husband and likewise the husband has not power over his own body but the wife and one preacher looked at this and says you should be a good christian and have sex every day i, I think he he missed that even though it's kind of comedic to say that but he missed the point that sexual relationship is to be one of giving and one of ministering and it's wrong for it to be otherwise. And lastly, does it involve honest communication between the husband and wife? Uh, the sexual relationship should be in all honesty as well as all godliness. And if the spouse feels like they must hide something from the other, then something's wrong. And I, I believe that those principles in and of themselves kind of lay a good foundation, and I have found them to do so. And some miscellaneous advice for those that are not yet married who want to follow the Lord. And, I, and if I was to offer any advice here, it's the advice that Paul gave. Flee youthful lust. God has something for you. Um, and by giving in to youthful lust, we are marring that. If you have stumbled in the lust already, determine from this point forward that you're going to live for Christ in your body and in your spirit. You're going to glorify him um, in your body and in your spirit and in everything that you do. Uh, if God desires for you to be single, it's not a reproach. Um, if God has prepared a mate for you, that uh, that that that's that's good too, and both of these are aspects of what God does in people's lives. And some people, uh, God gives the gift of singleness, if you will, uh, that they may give all their energies to following Him. Um, 
but whatever whatever calling God has on your life, uh, carry yourself, your vessel of this body um, in honor as you go throughout whatever ministry that is. Don't, don't put yourself in a position of dishonoring your bodies. Um, don't put yourself in a position of exciting those lusts that are very easy to, um, to be carried away with the moment. Um, some some uh, people have likened likened playing with lust to playing with dynamite, and the shoot fuse gets shorter and shorter, and you keep thinking you can put out the fuse, and and nothing will happen. But sooner or later, the fuse will reach the dynamite, and it explodes. Uh, keep yourself pure in body and in mind. Um, it it is important your thought life, and it is important that you you bring every thought into the obedience of Christ. John Wesley, for instance, uh, stated that you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Um, attempt to bring those thoughts into obedience. Don't cave into cultural pressure that you have to express yourself sexually. Uh, that's not true. Um, there, there is no necessity necessity of that in in the Christian life. Um, there, there is no greater joy in following the Lord, and one who truly loves the Lord will not be one that is pressuring you to dishonor yourself and dishonor your bodies before the Lord. Um, so that's some miscellaneous advice before we kind of dive into the evangelist. Oh, I can't talk the evangelistic. Um, point um, of sexuality. So with that said, let's dive right into the evangelistic point of sexuality um, or the evangelistic point of view. And in this, I want to try to broaden our understanding of, of sexuality as it relates to the declaration of the gospel. Uh, and to do this, I want to kind of look at it from two different angles. First, I want to look at it from the moral perspective and then from the existential perspective. Um, so let, let's consider sexuality as it is a moral issue that we all must face. Um, it's been rightly pointed out that Value-free sex education, that is sex education that is emptied of meaning, emptied of purpose, emptied of value, uh, outside of that of being a self-expression of one's own desires uh, or creation of whatever is in people's minds. Such value-free sex education is not only useless, it's dangerous. And we have to see the moral danger of all of this. Um... The, the wisdom of the day is that personal and religious values have no position in the public square. Uh, so even as I'm talking about this, uh, there's pressure society, from society that, that, uh, that tells me that I need to tread lightly. Uh, even our recent Supreme Court decisions have stated that no one, uh, uh, if you consider rather uh, 
any boundaries to sexuality at all, uh, that that is due to animus and bigotry. Uh, that was the opinion of our Supreme Court in the United States. So, so our culture has descended into the abyss of the amoral, uh, that there is nothing but that self-expression and that must be protected. Um, and our culture has descended uh, into darkness as they go further and further into this. As long as we are unable to interject biblical principles to correct our culture, we will continue into a moral decay of, se of the sexual revolution. Um, and that's dangerous. We, we have let educators march into the classrooms and the media march into our living rooms and continuously pushing this message, anything goes, anything goes, anything goes. And we as a culture struggle with this in our conscience. On the one hand, our culture desires to say that sex is value-free and whatever way sex, of sexual expression there is uh, that a person chooses to, to identify with is equally valid with all other forms of sexual expressions. Lust has reduced our human nature to the level of animals like this. Um, uh, the dog, I had this one person uh, bring this up as an argument that the dog has sex freely, so she, we should be without guilt and shame <laughs> however however we express our sexuality as, uh, as well. Uh, that's the heart of moral decay, that there is something more that we as human beings are than animals. If we base our morality on the course of nature, on what animals do, we open the door to all manner of violence and depravity. For instance, uh, um, uh, it's not uncommon to see rape among gorillas. Uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's not uncommon to see a dog eat its own young. Yeah. Uh, these are obviously things that are beneath the dignity of, uh, of human ethical behavior. Um, this is the lot of rebellious humanity to cast off the fetters of the, of the divine and say we are ourselves, we create ourselves, and we are express ourselves, and no one should tell us that we can't. But on the other hand, our cultural, our cultural position is that we want to have our cake and eat it too. We still want to say that child rape is wrong, and I'm glad as a culture that we can agree on that. Um, we want to say that it's absolutely wrong. There, there, there is no, no, no circumstance that we can think of where that would ever be right. And we still have that conscience, which is able to point to the worst of actions and say that's wrong. And the average person is rightly indignant at the idea of rape. The idea of date rape, the idea of child molestation. In an attempt to justify one particular kind of behavior, though, our culture is now in danger of having to accept all sexual behavior. And it, as I said a second ago, it, 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 it's hard for them to say that anything is wrong with anything without, without 
revealing the weakness of their own justification of their own behavior. So our culture wants to say yes to this, but if they do, they openly they open up the possibility that something may be wrong with what they are doing. Uh, we call that um, cognitive dissidence when. Whenever we hold contradictory views, we will ultimately have to jettison one and completely set up the other. The choice is now standing before our culture, and they are clinging to one. Either that, either there is a such thing as sin when it comes to sexual values, or anything goes. And when I say anything goes, I mean anything. Mm. No matter how vile, no matter how harmful, anything. The culture seems to make the choice for the latter and against the former. It seems to be choosing the idea that there is no sin. and There, there is no such thing as sin. And therefore, they can't say that anything is wrong in any real way with anything. And the right, the categories of right and wrong when it comes to sex are quickly disappearing from the conscious mind, conscious mind of our culture. And I fear we haven't really felt the depths of it, the depths of cruelty and depravity, which a dying culture can stoop to when it comes to sexuality and sexual sins. As the culture embraces all forms of paganism, we are reminded that Pagan societies of old accepted all forms of perversions, even child molestation and human sacrifices. We are embracing the sexual morals that burned living children at altars alive to gain favor from their sexual gods and made sport of killing and enslaving human beings for entertainment. Um, the Marquis de Sade used to write, horrific tales of sexual violence which the elite of his day gobbled up with insatiable lust. His writings earned a new title fitted to his name, Sadist. However, all what the Marquis de Sade was writing about was value-free sex. The same can be seen with modern works like Clockwork Orange or Fatal Attraction or Fifty Shades of Grey and that people in our generation have gobbled up and and even and, and even have justified as 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 uh, as an okay thing to to uh, partake in and what was it it was images of bondage image of of violence and sexuality once god is out of the mind of the author sadism is what results in movies and publications, values are gone, and we see the images becoming more and more violent and more and more perverted every day. I remember several years ago, it was probably about 10 years ago, uh, when this first came to my mind, uh, I heard a uh, broadcast on NPR, uh, or uh, National Public Radio, and uh, and the story was told of a young lady who attended an after-prom event at her school, and the young lady there was gang-raped by several young men. And the rape itself endured for almost three hours in length. 
But that wasn't the shocking part of the story. The shocking part of the story was the fact that during that three hours, several dozen of her fellow classmates watched the rape occur. They did not rape her physically, but as the rape went on, some of them laughed, others taunted her, and some of them recorded it on their cell phones to stream the images to their friends that were not there. And the local community where this occurred was left horrified at the event. Psychologists, of course, came on to NPR to discuss the bystander effect and so on, and to no avail because it did no good to describe how such a thing could happen. The spectators didn't rape, but they stood there around and were entertained by real suffering and sexual violence that was going on in front of their eyes. And how could they become so sadistic? And that they were able to revel in the rape of one of their classmates. In the same schoolhouse, though, where God has been removed, the Ten Commandments have been removed, which, by the way, deal with sexual purity, physically and spiritually, have to be, they've been taken down. They stood and wondered how the next generation of young people could have behaved in such a way. In the same school where sex education classes hand out condoms and tell students that all sex is okay and safe, as long as it's safe, rather, and they wonder how such acts could happen. The fact that sexual sexuality is a moral issue cannot be reasonably avoided. Let us be frank here. There is such a thing as sin. And I know people don't like that. Uh, I told you last time about the college professor sociology class that uh, knew I was a Christian, so decided he wanted to know my opinion of homosexuality, to which I told him. And he said I was a bigot. And then I asked him in front of the entire class because he thought that he had uh, cleverly destroyed and embarrassed a Christian. I said, at what point does my belief in sin become bigoted? I believe adultery is a sin. Is that bigoted? Is, I believe fornication is a sin. I believe, I believe looking at pornography. At what point? And the real, I realized when I left that class that the real problem they had with me as a Christian wasn't my view of homosexuality. That's just a golden calf. It was my view of sin, my belief in sin. But we have to be honest, there is sin. When it comes to sex, scriptures are not shy about naming sin. And the first thing that comes to mind is someone would say, well, okay, now they're going to talk, he, this, he's going to talk about homosexuality and transgenderism. And in fact, some people listening to this probably have been looking <laughs> for this point in the discussion for me to say something. And am I going to say that those things are sin? Of course I am. Um, but I can't stop there. Just because it's not a sin, because that sin is not something I'm dealing with, I, I need to be honest 
that there is more for me as a Christian to talk about than bestiality and homosexuality and transgenderism and extremes uh, in our culture. The problem is this. The Christian community is satisfied to deal with obvious sexual sins of that nature that affect culture at large, but they're unwilling to call sin that are uh, call things in their own life that they either enjoy or are entertained by as sin. The only reason a Christian should ever call homo, uh, say homosexuality as a sin is out of love so they can give the gospel. Uh, we have been to too many meetings where where um, the preacher would wax hot about homosexuality but not say anything about the real sins that were going on right there in the pews. We should preach about perversions, yes, but but the only purpose is for sharing Christ with those. We're all laden with sin. We all need Christ. We all need forgiveness of sins. Christ came to save sinners. And if someone never sees himself as a sinner, they can't come to Christ. So we so the message of sexuality is evangelistic because it's only pointing out the moral problem so we can present the Savior and we speak the truth in love. But we must be willing to have his lordship, not only call Christ our Savior, but have his lordship over us to create this new paradigm. A church that embraces sexual immorality in convenient matters should be rightly mocked and condemned as hypocrites by this world. A disrespect of the marriage union and church, such as serial marriages and unfaithful church leadership and sexual sins going on in churches, uh, uh, when that's the reality of what's going on, it cannot challenge the culture. Sometimes I'm afraid when sex is spoken about in churches, homosexuality is highlighted only out of a sense of self-righteousness. It's easy to preach about, right? Because that's not a sin I'm struggling with. Uh, it's easy to say amen from the pew because it's not a sin I'm struggling with. Um, we preach about the hideousness of sexual sins in order to make ourselves feel better about the hideousness of ours. And the subject of sex, though, should convict all of us. Like I said last time, there's not one of us that at some point has not committed a sexual sin, if not physically, spiritually. Instead, we prop it up as a self-righteous uh, subject. Why is so little discussed about other sexual sins in our church? Why is it that churches are increasingly filled with people that that uh, no longer see a problem with se with, with sexuality um, um, as long as it's not of this category. I mean, it, jokes about boys sowing their wild oats, jokes about uh, test-driving relationships. Um, uh, this idea is a loss among Christianity that the, if I'm following the Lord, he's the Lord of my body over me in all aspects and he's the lord over my appetites and over my 
pleasures and I am supposed to maintain myself in sanctification and honor bodily. There's not enough preached about in our churches about the sin of fornication or the sin of lust. And because of that, we are we are becoming increasingly hypocritical. And the inability for us to see uh, sex as a moral issue, as a real moral issue, um, is dangerous in the sense that there is real judgment for sin. Our eye affects our heart, and as we continue on with the sins that so easily beset us, and we encourage ourselves in the idea that what we're doing is okay because we've convinced ourselves that it's not as bad as what what they are doing in one way, one way, shape, or form. Then we are leading ourselves into this into real judgment by our ignoring of our sin. Uh, there is a verse in the scripture that says, be sure your sin will find you out. And the idea there is sin, or rather the judgment of sin, is stalking. It's pursuing like an avenger after us. And we cannot sin and get away with it any more than we can break the law, laws of nature and get away with it. Uh, we, we can't sin and get away. We cannot break real moral laws and not incur judgment. Sin affects us. It affects us bodily. Solomon says of his own sexual sins and or or rather in reference to the sexual sins of the subject in which he was talking about. He says, Thou shalt mourn at last when thy flesh and thy body are consumed. Uh, Proverbs 5.11 This fact is not even debatable. If sex only occurred within the boundaries of God, within loving, monogamous marriage relationships between men and women, there would be no sexually transmitted diseases, ever. Sin finds us out. We cannot try to break physical laws without harmful effect. We can't break moral laws without the same effect. No amount of safe sex education will make dangerous sex, sex outside of God's moral boundaries, safe. Sin doesn't just affect us physically, though. You may continue in sexual sin and never have physical consequences. But it affects us spiritually. And no matter how much we want to tell ourselves that it's just a physical act, this Christian Gnosticism that that uh, my, the physical is evil and the spiritual is good. What I am spiritually is all that matters, and therefore what I do with my body doesn't matter. <laughs> that, that, that's, 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 that's not true. What we do with our bodies does matter. It 
And if we say that we are Christians, we are dragging the name of Christ into it. Um, there is something more than physical that occurs between two people in a sexual act. Paul said, do you not know that he that is joined to a prostitute is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. And then he went on to talk about how can you take Christ and make him the member of a prostitute because you as a Christian are supposed to be Christ. That's a blasphemous thought. And and as sad is there there are so many that proclaim the name of Christ and say that there are Christians that bring Christ into sexual acts that are immoral. Uh, I, I wasn't happy with um, one entertainment provider when they decided that they were going to portray Christ as as a as a homosexual. Um, that wasn't something that was pleasing to me as a Christian. But there are so many Christians that that name the name of Christ that are sit there and entertained by fornication. That they are spiritually they drag Christ into into their own. Uh, sexual sins and even go around believing that Christ is okay with it. It affects us spiritually. Um, when we talk about sexual sins such as adultery and fornication, fornication, the Bible declares that the people who do those things sin against their own soul. So we can't just make it a physical act. We cannot... We cannot even really weigh the hurt that really comes from engaging in those sexual sins. Uh, there's the pricking of the conscience. There's the sense of shame. There's a sense of loneliness. There's a sense of rejection. There's a sense of depression. There's a sense of uncontrolled anger and myriads of other spiritual things that come with sexual sins. And it's experienced by... By those that um, engage in them. I had a cousin who, when we were teenagers, he committed suicide. Why did he commit suicide? Sex. Because he was enmeshed in a sexual relationship outside of marriage, and it brought with it all of these spiritual, the spiritual bondage with it. Much of teenage teenage depression and suicidal ideations begin with sexual activity. Um, and as we're continuing to go further and further into the anything goes ideology of sex and self-creation ideology of sex, the amount of teenage depression and suicidal attempts uh, continues to be on the rise. Society tries to drive the thought of morality and God away from the bedroom, but they can't. What we have become as a society is spiritually void, a dead and dying culture struggling with depression, psychosis, and suicidal ideation. And then sex will affect us eternally. Paul said this, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. A fornicator, an adulterer, and he goes on and names other sexual sins, shall not inherit the kingdom of God.
if we have such a life where a sexual sin defines us, we may call ourselves Christians all that we want. We are not. The activity that one engages in tells us something about their character. If you can live comfortably in fornication, if you can live comfortably in adultery without repentance, without turning from it, don't be deceived. Heaven is not your home. You may have repeated a prayer and called yourself a Christian, but you are not a new creature. And those that are Christians, these these sins that we struggle with, can keep us from running the race, can keep us from striving to live out the gospel, from looking unto Jesus. The Bible reveals something about sin to us, and it reveals a very real judgment because of it. And this is related to, we we cannot preach the gospel without preaching sin. And we cannot preach gospel by pretending that sin is not real. It is a moral issue, and it is important for us preaching Christ, who died for our sins. Finally, I want to consider sex as an existential issue. A clue, if you would, to something far, far greater. I guess... I said last time that there is a fourth purpose for sex. There's procreation, there's pleasure, there's fellowship. And this is this is that fourth purpose. And that's to illustrate a greater reality and a greater relationship. Sexual desire reminds us of a greater need that no physical act could ever fulfill. And we we know that no matter what physical pleasure, no matter what existential pleasure we have, it leaves us hungry for something greater and deeper. And that's what it was. And sex is probably one of those greatest experiences And in the confines of the boundaries and purposes of God, there's probably no greater experience that we can have physically on this earth. But yet, it always tells us that there's something more. The sexual relation points to our need that's far more important A relationship that's more important, closer, and more intimate. And that's a relationship with God, made possible through the incarnation of Christ. Through the gospel of Christ. There's a need that no human being could ever fulfill, or any sensation, or any pleasure. If we seek to fill this void with a person... We will always be disappointed. We will realize their imperfections, their their weaknesses. And if we try to put them into the place of that void, we end up destroying them and we end up destroying ourselves. 
God is the only one that can fulfill this greater need. Jesus is described in the scripture as the one that never leaves us and never forsakes us. He is the one that will never let us down. He alone can fill the existential void. No one else can. It is very interesting to me that the sexual relationship between husband and wife is the very same relationship that God gives us as a picture between the believer and Christ. If you're saved, according to Romans 7, 4, you're married to Christ. The church is his bride in Ephesians 5, 25. You are presented to Christ as a chaste virgin, according to 1 Corinthians. Christ is your husband. Therefore, the physical purposes and designs of sexuality can be applied spiritually in a greater way to one's relationship with Christ. Charles Wesley wrote, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. What wonderful words. Consider again those first three purposes of sex and now apply them to Christ. The first purpose of sex was procreation. Christ said of his disciples, I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. We enter into divine purpose and labor through our relationship with Christ. We are reconciled to God and have the presence of God in our lives through Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. We are not brought into marriage with Christ simply to do nothing, but to produce something together with him. We are to labor for him that others may be brought into his kingdom. It should be our fervent prayer that Christ would use us to reach others. John Hyde, the great prayer warrior, when musing over the story of Rachel when she cried unto Joseph, or Jacob rather, to give her children, he prayed, John Hyde prayed, Lord, give us souls or else we die. The second purpose of sex was pleasure. And so is the purpose center stage in our relationship with Christ. In him, the believer finds pleasures without end forevermore. Psalm 16, 11. Our cup runs over. Psalm 23. He is our all in all. His care is for our pleasure. And so if we are to be faithful to him, our main concern as a good spouse is his pleasure. We are created for his pleasure, Revelation 4.11. The sexual relationship in marriage is one of mutual giving to one another. And when we read earlier, it's from Song of Solomon, we saw that, that mutual giving and that wonderful allegory of Christ and the believer. The relationship described in that book is one of mutual pleasure between the king and his bride. The last purpose of sex is fellowship. 
And truly in Christ, we find the greatest intimacy. We commune with him in prayer and in study. And as we walk with him, he's always with us. When it says in the Bible of a man and wife that they know one another, a sexual relationship was described. In that, it's an intimate knowledge that is exchanged. In the same meaning of the word, we can know Christ in a deeper, more spiritual way. And we should join with Paul in making that our great desire where he says, I've counted all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. For him I have suffered the loss of all things, and that I might win him, that I might know him. Philippians 3, 8 through 11. See, salvation is not a creed. It's not a prayer. It's not a membership into a social club. Salvation is an intimate relationship in the most important and vital life-giving relationship that could ever be had. It's typified by the husband and wife relationship, but it's greater. And our faithfulness and conformity to that purpose, both in our relationship with Christ and the realities that typify that relationship, should inform all aspects of our life. There is a greater and deeper meaning to sex that can only be understood by those who know and trust Christ. I hope you were able to enjoy our short conversation of sexuality and understand its deeper meaning and purpose the purpose that can only be found in Christ until next time Lord bless